Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. We hope to challenge and equip you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus through these messages from our weekend worship gatherings. How we doing? Everybody good? You ready? Grab your Bible, go ahead and go to 1 Samuel. We're going to keep walking through the life of Saul as we are in part three of a series that we're calling Win Within. Because this is going to be the year when we finally get out of our own way. Come on. Because the reality is the greatest threat to the life you desire is not your annoying coworker. The greatest threat to the life that you desire is not your neighbor that drives you crazy. The greatest threat to the life you desire is not that family member that you just can't get rid of. The greatest threat to the life you desire is the very person looking back at you in the mirror. Charles Spurgeon, who's one of the greatest preachers to ever live, and his messages are as timely now as they've ever been because, say amen, if you know, truth transcends time. Doesn't matter when it was preached. Doesn't matter if it was five days ago or 500 years ago. Truth is truth, and his word will always be relevant. Charles Spurgeon, he said, Beware of no man more than of yourself, because we carry our own worst enemies within us. That the enemy is within. That the greatest threat to the life that you desire is you. And we've decided that in 2021, this is going to be the year where we finally get out of our own way. That we stop falling into the same traps that maybe we've been victim to for decades. Because see, some of us have been living in this cycle of self-destruction for far too long. It started when we were 9 or 10 or 12 or 22, and we just can't seem to break the pattern. Or for some of us, the cycle of self-destruction began generations ago. And we're just continuing to model the same mistakes that were modeled before us. And as I said last week, there are some of us that are modeling mistakes before people we love too much to watch them repeat them. And we're going to have to break the cycle. And this is not some self-help series. I had somebody say that about this series. We remember, well, that church just teaches self-help. This ain't about self-help. This is about us coming to the realization that when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave and we accepted that sacrifice for our salvation, he emptied us of that sin and his spirit set up residence in us and the God that lives inside of us is enough to give us victory. And his... It's time we started living like it, to break out of that pattern, to end that cycle, to stop being victim to weapons of self-destruction, to stop sabotaging our own lives. And some of us have gotten so used to that, anytime something good comes in our lives, we, we so, it's so foreign that we maybe not intentionally or maybe intentionally do things to ruin it with their own self-destructive behavior. And the good news is God's word even transcends this subject. And he gives us examples. He gives us examples of a lot of people that we should model and a lot of people that their lives are to remind us of don't do that. And I know we like to think that we're the heroes of scripture, but sometimes we're not. That we're more often like Judas than we are Peter. And there's a guy in the Bible who was the very first king of the nation of Israel. His name is Saul. And Saul is the poster child for self-destruction. 
At every single turn, he does the exact opposite of what he needs to do to have the life that God had designed for him, and he continues to fall victim to weapons of self-destruction. And we've been leaning into his life, and we've watched him do some of the same things that we're often guilty of doing ourselves. That time after time, he just completely ignores God's instructions and does his own thing and constantly tries to justify it. And what we've learned in this is you can't do a little bit of what God says. Come on. That there is no such thing as partial obedience. And we convince ourselves that if we do half of what God says, then we're good. Especially if we got good intentions. But last week, remember, we learned that our good intentions never give us permission to ignore God's instructions. There is no such thing as partial obedience. The kind of obedience that God desires is complete and immediate. And if we're going to ever step into the destiny that he has designed for our lives, we got to get to the point when the Holy Spirit is the one in charge. Not our emotions, not a substance, the Holy Spirit. So that when God speaks, we listen. When he says go, we go when he says, how he says, where he says. To get in tune with his voice. And see, Saul doesn't do that. And it finally gets to the point where we left off in the story where he's had time after time and chance after chance and he still can't get it right. And Samuel, the prophet of God, the mouthpiece of God, comes to finally Saul and he says, Saul, it's over, man. God has decided he's gonna pick another one. And what Samuel says to Saul, I don't know if it hits you. Jasmine's keeps saying this series is like a punch in the gut every week, and I feel it. But he looks at Saul and says, because you've constantly been disobedient, God is going to take this from you, and he's going to give it to somebody better than you. Ouch. <laughs> not, not only is he going to take it, he's going to give it to somebody who's going to be better. You talk about a gut punch. And so the Lord, word of the Lord comes to Samuel and says, Samuel, I've made the decision. I'm going to choose somebody else to be king over my people. And I've already chosen them. And he says, go to the house of a man named Jesse. And there I will show you who I desire to be the next king over Israel. So Samuel goes to Jesse's house. And Jesse's is just as caught off guard by this as anybody. And Jesse begins to parade his sons before Jesse. And he did it in the order that would have been very customary in Jewish tradition. He brings the oldest out first. And one by one, he brings Jesse's sons before Samuel. And God says to Samuel, nope, not him. Nope, not him. Nope, not him. And in that process, God says something to Samuel that is super profound. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I rejected him. Because see, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It says, Samuel, you need to know something, man. What God sees, what God looks at, where God has value is different than where people put value. People like tall and pretty, Flashy and fancy, but God is looking deeper than that shallow nonsense, and he's looking into the heart of people, that the exterior, you can dress it up all you want to, but it's what's inside that matters, that God has always chosen people that the world and culture and society would overlook, 
God has always used the unexpected to do the extraordinary. That's why I believe that God can spark a global revival from little old Randleman. And the 10 of us that are excited are going to make it happen. So he prays these guys out, and finally, he's brought all the ones that Jesse thought would, could be the options. And Samuel says, do you, do you not have any more sons? Yeah, my, my youngest. See, Jesse never even considered that it could be David. And finally, he brings David before Samuel, and Sam, God hears from Samuel, that's the one. God will often use the runt of the family to do extraordinary things. That's the one that God had chosen. David. Y'all know David. Y'all have heard of David. David will be the one. And in that moment, God selects the successor to Saul. All the while, Saul is continuing to kind of implode. And what the Bible says about Saul next is something that you're going to find really hard to swallow, to wrestle with. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14 it says, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Leave that up for just a second. I don't know about you, but I read that verse, and it's kind of hard to, to connect with. We can understand the whole part. Now, the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. That Saul, Saul had done this to himself. Everybody's with me, right? Saul had done this to himself. He had constantly disobeyed, rejected God, wouldn't listen, and God said, okay, you constantly keep begging God to leave you alone, then he eventually will give you what you ask for. He gave him over to it. But then that next part, an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. To try to wrap our mind around something evil flowing from a holy God, is trying to understand that concept is difficult. And one of the things that make it, makes it difficult is when we're turning biblical language into English, it's a difficult kind of gap to close at times. It's hard to think about evil coming from God, but I'll just remind you that God is sovereign. And so both good and evil must flow through his hand because he is in charge and over everything. Am I making sense? That what he allows, and when he takes his hand off of him, see, the only thing standing between you and absolute destruction is the Holy Spirit of an almighty God. His grace that you walk in is what keeps you alive every single day. You with me? Say Amen. And there are things inside of Saul that if he would walk to obedience, the Holy Spirit would continue to give him victory over. But when he continues to resist that, he's given over to his own devices and they begin to consume him. That happens to anybody who rejects God. Eventually, you will destroy you. That that brokenness inside you that longs to be made whole by God, if it is not pieced back together, it will begin to cause you to implode. But here's the grace of God. Even though all this happened, God still in his grace provided him an outlet for peace and, and, and calm. Even though he had this tormented spirit that, that was just chewing at his very soul, God sent him David. See, David was going to be the king of Israel, but David was also intended to be an instrument of healing in the life of Saul. Let me show you. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 21. It says, David came to Saul and entered his service. 
Saul liked him very much. Saul liked him very much. And David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I'm pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from the Lord or from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. That even though he had this thing that tormented him, and even though he had picked David to be his successor, he gave David a gift that had the potential to soothe his spirit and bring healing to his heart. I think that says a lot about the beauty and power that God has always intended for music in our lives. But David was supposed to be this instrument that would continue to bring healing in David's, in Saul's life. But David would begin to step into his destiny, and Saul had a front row seat for that and didn't know how to deal with it. Y'all know the story. There comes a point when, when the Philistines are once again waging war against the nation of Israel. And Israel has lined up on one side of the battlefield and the Philistines on the other. And they decided instead of meeting in the middle to fight, they're going to have a showdown. That the Philistines would send their most fierce warrior out onto the battlefield and invite the nation of Israel to do the same. And whoever would win that one-on-one -on -one matchup would have victory. But here's the thing. The Philistines had a guy that was nine foot tall and bulletproof. Kind of like the old Travis Tritt song. Yeah. Anybody? And the Israelites were just terrified by this man. And the Bible says for 40 days, Goliath would step out on the field, say, who wants some? That's just the Matt Smith version. Who wants some? And the Israelites would shudder in fear. And then one day, David shows up on the battlefield. And he, didn't, he was not there to fight. He was there to deliver Doritos. He was at home one day, and his dad knew that his brothers were down on the battlefield, and he basically loads him up with some snacks and says, take this stuff to your brother. That's literally why he was there. He came to deliver some snacks to his brothers. And while he's passing out Capri Suns to his brothers, Goliath steps back out and makes this declaration. And David's like, y'all gonna let this happen? Like, seriously? Who does this guy think he is that he can just stand out here in front of God's people and say these kind of things? Y'all need to do something. They're like, David, stop your embarrassing us. You ain't supposed to be here. Go back home. And David's like, I'll do it. I killed a lion and a bear with my bare hands. Get it? Bear, lion, bear, bare hands. I can do this. And he says, I'll do it. And he goes to King Saul. I think Saul's just thinking, well, worst case scenario, I just lose my heart player, you know? And they try to put Saul's armor on him to send him out to fight. And, it's kind of, and I can imagine, like, here's this little, this little boy. It's kind of like me when you were like five years old, you put your daddy's clothes on, just draped over you. And he's like, no, this is not going to work. This is not how I do this. And he grabs his sling, and it says he picks up five smooth stones. And he goes out there and with one shot sinks a stone right in that joker's forehead. And now every time I tell this story, I have to read my favorite part of it because we sterilize the Bible and it's much more graphic than we want to admit. It says in verse 51 of 1 Samuel 
1751, David ran, stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. Nobody colored that in children's church. Like we have, we tell the story when we were little kids and it's like David in his little sling. When I want the one with David, a sword in one hand, head in the other, like. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? That's the real Bible. Put it back up. That's the way it happened. David was hardcore. We think VeggieTales, this is Braveheart. <laughs> and little boy slaves a man that big who had been testing the nation for 40 days. You don't need Twitter for that to go around the world. And it does. 1 Samuel 18, 69, verse 69, or verse six through nine. It says, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and with dancing, with joyful songs, with temporals and lyres, as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. This refrain, refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only, a, only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And from that moment forward, Saul had a front row seat to watch a man become everything he was supposed to be. He has to sit back and watch David step in to everything that he was supposed to be, wanted to be, but would never be. He watched as everybody celebrated his victory and David was this incredible warrior that would go out and do these amazing things and the people would praise him. And the loyalty that they would have to him is something Saul would never be able to have. Even Saul's very own son, Jonathan, would essentially choose David over him. And they would have a friendship that was as tight as anyone in all of scripture. And when you watch somebody else becoming everything that you wanted to be, it does something to a person. And David is living the life that Saul desperately wanted and can't have. And the next thing you know, envy starts to just brew up in his spirit to the point where he just becomes enraged at the very sight of David. Not because David was doing anything wrong, but because he saw in him something he would never be. They'd be sitting in the same room at some point and just overcome with rage, David, I mean, Saul picked up a spear and just tossed it, trying to hit David to take his own life. Multiple times, he wanted to kill him because if you can't have what they have, you'd rather them not have it either. And resentment will take hold of you. And what happened was, in that moment, Saul allowed envy to ruin him so much that envy created an enemy where God intended an ally. Envy created an enemy where God intended an ally. See, David was supposed to be, I deeply believe, a part of Saul's healing process. 
Saul was never gonna be able to stay king, but the time he had left, God wanted to use David to help him see the things that he needed to change, that he needed to adjust. And see, God was trying to say, see, this is, this is what I really want, wanted for you. And instead of him recognizing that and coming to appreciate it and allowing God to begin to shift his heart in such a way, only resentment and envy build. And see, when envy sets in, that's what we do. We ruin what God intended to be good. We make enemies out of allies. And when envy begins to take control, Self-destruction is inevitable. Because envy is perhaps one of the most dangerous weapons of self-destruction we will ever suffer through. Envy can never end well. It just consumes us. Because envy is just as dangerous vertically as it is horizontally. Envy is just as dangerous with our relationship with God as it is our relationship with each other. Because can I, can I walk you through the pattern of what happens? You with me? Say amen. Here's what happens. I like what they have. I like what they have becomes I want what they have. I want what they have becomes I need what they have. I need what they have becomes I deserve what they have. I deserve what they have becomes, God, why did you give it to them instead of me? And now I'm mad at you. Do you see it? Envy gone unchecked, that's how, that's how it snowballs. I like it, I want it, I need it, I deserve it. God, why did you give it to them and not me? And it turns us into people that we never thought we could be. And that's why from the onset, even in, among the nation of Israel, when God gave us the Ten Commandments, one of them speaks to this very issue. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant, his ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That you should not get to the point where you desire what they have. Because if you get to that point where you're consumed with desire of what others have, it will eat you from the inside out. And it cannot end well. Proverbs 17.4. Anger is cruel and fury overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Do you see even the way it's elevating jealousy over other toxic emotions like anger can be? Like who can stand before jealousy? Proverbs 14, 30. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. It rots the bones. That when we get consumed with envy, it just destroys us from the inside out. Job 5, 2, resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. And we live in a world where it's so easy to get consumed by envy, isn't it? Because see, envy is fueled by constant comparison. Envy is fueled by constant comparison. And now I think about when, when Moses wrote the 10, or God gave the 10 commandments and brought it down, when it says, don't covet your neighbor's stuff. When that, God knew it was dangerous then, 
when the distance at which you could see and compare was very, very small. Like literally, you could, you could see your neighbors, those people on either side of you, and maybe in your own village. Think about the distance with which we compare in the culture that we live in. Not only do we have our neighbors to compare ourselves to, we have the entire doggone world to lay our lives against. God said, when the scripture was written, the distance with which we could compare ourselves to another was quite small. Now, we're looking at the Kardashians trying to figure out why our lives don't look like theirs. Thank God it doesn't. And if you want it to, Lord, help your soul. We have walking around on our person constantly a tool that gives us a constant window to which to look through and see the entire world and become consumed with comparing what we have to what they have. And no wonder we're all insecure. Because envy is unending. Because the moment you find somebody that becomes your new target and you hit it, there's somebody new. And the moment you get what they have and align with their level, there's somebody new. And we're fueling this comparison. And envy is growing. But you know, I was thinking in between services, and first service didn't get this because it didn't hit me till in between. Comparison does not only fuel envy, it can also fuel something just as dangerous, arrogance. Because sometimes we're not looking at people who have what we don't, but what we want. We're looking at people who don't have what we have, and we're thinking we're better than they are. That's all comparison can do. If you're constantly looking yourself through the lens of everybody else's highlight reel or low light reel, it will never end well for you. It will only destroy these relationships and this relationship. That's why James wrote in chapter three, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Because see, in the end, comparison will always kill contentment. Comparison will always kill contentment. Because there will always be something to push you away from real lasting joy. If you're constantly comparing your life and what you have and what you don't and who you are and what you wanna be with the lives of everybody else, it will ruin the contentment in your spirit. And contentment is a valuable commodity if you're ever gonna live a life of peace and win within. And it's not one that comes natural to us. Paul would say in Philippians 4 that it is a learned position. Philippians 4 Verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know, what is to, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. 
I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That this contentment is not something that came natural to me. I'm like the rest of y'all. It was a struggle. But I've learned. And the reason why contentment is so important is because discontent often leads to disobedience. Because you know what discontent leads to? Needless, unnecessary, never-ending chase. If you're discontent, if you don't find contentment in who God is and who God created you to be, you're always gonna have this desire to chase things. And when you're chasing contentment, you'll spend money you don't have, enter into relationships you don't need, take promotions that aren't necessarily good for your family, continue to try to acquire stuff that will only leave you empty. You cannot fill the void created by envy in comparison by anything in and of this world. It's something that only God can put into your heart. Solomon, who comes in the lineage of these men that were discussed in Saul and David, Solomon would be David's son. He wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. You should read it every now and then. Ecclesiastes 4. It says, And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. That so much of what people are trying to achieve in this world, it's not motivated by kindness or charity or generosity. It's driven by envy to rig it to the top and step on everybody else while we get there. But this too is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and run and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Saul would basically ruin any chance he had to find peace because he allowed envy to turn an ally into an enemy and it consumed him. And I got a feeling that it's consuming a lot of us as well because we are walking around with these little pocket devils. And we're looking at our lives through the lens of social media instead of the lens of scripture. When you look through the lens of social media, you will only always see what they have. When you look through the lens of scripture, you will see who he is and who you made you to be. Which one are you looking through more of? Which one is, I've said something multiple times as I've been pastoring this church. What you are consuming is consuming you. What you are consuming is consuming you. Are you consuming the things that will give you peace and contentment of heart? Or are you consuming things that are only fueling comparison and allowing envy to continue to grow in your life? And nobody is immune to this. No matter how much you have, no matter how accomplished you feel, this is a trap that is being set in front of every person on the planet. And so many of us are stepping in it and self-destructing. But it's also one that we have the most control over. We can lay these things down and we can take up the right things that are gonna fuel reminders of who God made us to be.
bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. I feel like every message in this series, it's easy for so many of us to walk out and think, man, that was a good message for somebody. That's a good message for somebody. I'm gonna send this one to my coworker. He needs to hear this. When God's saying, what are you gonna do about it? What are you gonna do with what you just heard? Are you gonna be honest? At all the toil and wind chasing that you're doing, rooted totally in envy, you're trying to mask it like, oh, I'm just trying to do the right thing for my family. I'm just trying to. And God's saying, let me be who I'm supposed to be and give you what only I can so you can rest, so you can have some peace. So Lord, I pray that every single one of us take some hard inventory, that God, you'd recall to us in our minds even what the last seven days looked like. God, it's, it's hard to be fixated on other people when we're focused on you. So change our gaze. Divert us from the things that are only breeding our insecurity and fueling the envy that we have that's gonna lead to our self-destruction because discontent will set in and disobedience will be the next thing that follows because we will chase things that we don't even really need. God, bring us into some awareness. And God, as we worship you before we leave this place this morning, help us to do the hard work that's necessary before we step out there with the temptation that's gonna be more than we even realize. So God, move among your people. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Church Podcast. We hope that what you experience today inspires you to live and love like Jesus. Stay connected with what's happening at Vintage and grow deeper in your faith by downloading the Vintage Church app. Through this app, you have access to sermon notes, upcoming events, devotionals, additional podcasts, and opportunities to connect in community. You can easily download our app by going to app.vintagechurch.net. We hope you join us again soon.